0: Hello and welcome to Fans, the podcast hosted by me, Sachin Akrani, in which I speak to people I like, find interesting or both about being football fans. So yes, Fans is back after a summer break, a three-month summer break to be precise, and it's very much back with a bang, given I'm joined by a massive guest to talk about a massive club for this opening episode of Series 3, BBC journalist, and as he described himself on his Twitter profile, MCFC addict, it's Neil Henderson. Neil, how are you?
1: Good afternoon, Sasha. I'm fine, thank you, and thank you very much for inviting me on this.
0: No, absolute pleasure to have you on. I was, um, I was keen. To, I've been keen to have you on for, for a while, partly to talk about MCFC, which of course is Manchester City, a club I'm, I've yet to cover in in this podcast, and obviously a, a huge club at the moment. Obviously, English champions and, and very close to being European champions a few months ago as well. A club with a f-, you know, fascinating history, which we'll get into, but also for sort of various reasons about your own. Uh, your own working and private life at the moment. And probably the most interesting aspect of that is that you're coming to me live from Jerusalem. Um, you're working as the BBC's acting bureau chief out in the Middle East in, in Jerusalem. Um, I mean, obvious question, what's life in Jerusalem like?
1: Oh, it's sensational. Well, there, there's the, the weather, for one thing, which is never out <laughs> of the 30s at the moment. In fact, actually, they're having um, what they're terming as a heat wave here, I'm afraid. It's just 36, 37 in the afternoons. Wow. Um, which uh, even for here is, is viewed as mm-hmm. really pretty serious heat. And, um, you know, obviously on a dark perspective, um, some evidence of climate change and all the rest of it and forest fires and, and all that. And um, yeah, so there's the, the weather and there's the food, which is sensational. Uh, there's the people in the office they've given me responsibility for, and they they are absolutely fantastic people, total experts. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a, I, when I was training uh, and getting my feet under the table um, in one of my first tally jobs, um, one of um, one of my my mates said to me, you know, Neil, you've got such a lush job,
0: <laughs> and he's right.
1: Yeah. He's, he was completely right. He was right then and he's right now. It is, uh, it's one of those things um, that is, uh, uh, particularly at times like these, actually, when most people are for no control of their own, no reason of their own, no fault of their own, stuck at home, um, suffering um, the privations of lockdown. Um, I have actually this year been able to travel uh, mm. a fair amount. And um it's been difficult in terms of organization and you know getting blood tests and things like that. But you know, it is possible to do um if you're on business and uh and you're prepared to go through, you know, um the difficulties of it. So yeah, it is an enormous privilege to be here. Just I won't deny that, I won't fight that for a second.
0: Yeah, I mean I mean my sense from having studied the Israel in school and also from just having watched the news for like the past 25 years or so is that. Although it must be an incredible place to live. It must also be a, a tense, fraught and perhaps dangerous you know, part of the world to be in as well. How, how true is that? And how much of life there is actually very everyday, very normal people, you know, dropping the kids at school, going shopping, that type of thing?
1: Well, I think it's like Northern Ireland in some respects mm. over the years and where, another place where I've done a lot of work. I mean, there are tensions at various different times. Um, but what you find is that people just get on with their lives, uh, for, you know, as, as, as best as they can you know, through all the difficulties that the politics delivers them. And, um, you know, obviously Jerusalem is no exception. It's a divided city in some senses, Um, you know, with the Palestinian East Jerusalem and the Israeli rest of Jerusalem. And, um, but people just get on with it and they, you know, they get on with the checkpoints and they deal with the tensions and um, yeah, there is trouble from time to time and it's not without its danger. I haven't had any here children my spell, but, uh, my colleagues just went through a very um difficult conflict situation on the Gaza Strip, and obviously that's draining for them and really a massive professional challenge and obviously my my role here is to support them as best I can
0: yeah, I mean you say you, you are the acting bureau chief, so is it um is it a permanent role? Is the family come over with you or
1: no it's because they couldn't get anyone else <laughs> uh, You're too modest, Neil. They they just sent me out here to to run things for a month. I've been out here before, but they just sent me. It
0: it
1: was an empty seat, and and I hadn't claimed leave. So, you know. Fair enough.
0: well, as you say, yeah, no. Well, also, as you say, you know, at a time when most people are stuck home, I, mean, I haven't had a family holiday this year because I just I'm so confused by the rules on travel. You know, we've yeah. gone to like the furthest we've been from our home in South London is Newcastle for a few days, and we're going to Chessington World of Adventures tomorrow because we just don't know what the rules are on travel. So yeah, as you say, if you can get out of the country and just have that lovely feel of being in a foreign country and experiencing all the. The rich richness of life that comes with that, yeah, it's nice, no, fantastic. So. I think um, travel has
1: changed this year again, yeah. hasn't it? Even from last year, mm. um, it, I think travel now is about opportunism. Uh, you got you got to be flexible. You have got to jump when the window opens, yeah, because it's going to shut. Mm, and I think that's the I think that's the philosophy you just got to have now.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And I remain utterly confused on the rules. I think they changed again yesterday. We should say we're speaking in early August, the 5th of August, uh, 2021. This podcast episode will come out probably in a couple of weeks' uh, time. So things may have changed again on the travel front. But as we stand, um, I think there's been some relaxations of rules. But even, yeah, I'm, I'm, I think the Amber Alert has gone or something. I don't know. I'm still completely baffled by it. I'm just going to stay in England until it's all fully back to normal. Um, but yeah, moving away from your life in Jerusalem and travel, let's talk about Twitter. Because for many, many people, Neil, you are the guy who tweets out the, the back and front newspaper pages, national newspaper pages every evening via your Twitter account at um, Hendo um, You do that alongside your, your BBC colleagues, Ali Hodgkins-Brown and Helena Wilkinson. Um, it's a really important and interesting resource, especially for someone like me who works in the industry and especially in my role with the role I do occasionally of being a, 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 the paper editor at The Guardian, also the night editor at The Guardian um especially as a night editor i was just saying to you before we start recording you know the tweeting and the pages that you three do is really useful because it allows me to see what the competition are are running with that evening in terms of what the back page splashes after the likes of the mail and a telegraph and a times and the mirror and then if you know as a paper we need to react to those stories as well so it's a really important resource for me um it's something I believe, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that you, Ali, and Helena did off your own back. I'm just really interested how and why did it start. And is it fair to say you've got some ludicrous criticism, um, for it over the years? People sort of thinking somehow you're in control of those pages as well.
1: well there are lots of questions there. In, in one, um, should, should uh, actually say that also Helen Miller, um, of course, um, yeah, apologies, yeah, um, yeah, 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 um, does help us as well. Um, how did it start? Well, Nick Sutton. Um, started it he's now head of sky digital but he started it in about 2009 2010 ish and um i thought it was a brilliant idea i think he was just doing front page not sure he did the backs but um i think he may have done both i can't remember um and Mm. i just thought it was a great idea so um and anyway one day i think i was on a night shift and uh for some reason either his wi-fi went down or the work servers went down, and he couldn't get the front pages. But I was in the office and could see the front pages, not least because somebody brings them round up, thats one, sticks them on the, the news desk. Mm. And um, uh, so I said to him, well, why, why don't I do it, on the and you take a night off? And so he did, and I did it. And um, it got quite a reception, and um, I thought this is a really good thing. So every now and again, um, I'd do it on the nights that he was off. And then I think uh, after a couple of years um, he just got, he just got promoted, I think, to being head of digital at the BBC uh, also sort head of the website, the news website that is. And uh, he was having to get up at, you know, six o'clock in the morning or something every morning. So he was knackered mm. and he said to me, what do you want to take over? And I thought, well, can't do it on my own. So we put together a team on the news desk and there are all the people that that, um, do it, all four of us are people who work, just shifts on the news desk um, night shifts, day shifts, foreign shifts, home shifts, whatever and Helena is a correspondent who works on the news desk mm. so um, yeah we're all intimately connected with you know, the wharf and weft if you like of, of BBC news coverage and um, yeah so the papers are important to us so yeah, it's it was a natural development to take take control of that and to do it and as you say, we do it on our own backs. we don't get paid.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Does most of the response come from other journalists or, or do, you, do you real sense that the wider public appreciate what you do or, or just react to it generally, positively and negatively?
1: Um, that's a really interesting question. I think um, the follower count and the follower makeup is different from the public um, audience and reaction. I know that sounds a slightly weird, a slightly weird way of describing it, but um, my followers are, from what from what I can see, are other journalists, mm. um, politicians of all levels, uh, media workers, so to speak, um, and and pressure groups, stroke unions, stroke you know other people oh, yeah. that with think tanks. Mm. Um, and what and the refreshing thing about it is that the follower um, spread is right across the spectrum of political. Um, you know, political makeup, if you like There's, you know, from right to left wing through the middle, you know, the the follower spread is there because it's a impartial, you know, without fear or favour offering of of front pages of, you know, the weekly political periodicals, um, front pages of newspapers. And then, of course, we get to the sport because we put out the back pages as well. And obviously you just get a full range of football supporters. So that's the kind of core audience. But what you also get Is a kind of virality around certain front pages. So certain front pages kind of, if you like, catch fire, Mm. and they become the subject of literally millions of what Twitter calls page impressions. So sometimes, like, you know, when I'm in my pomp at home and I'm doing, I don't do them out here because the time difference is wrong, but um, when when I've got control of it and I'm doing it on my sofa at home, sometimes front pages will you know, go viral and they'll get like two and a half million um, page impressions, you know, a night and my, my account will go through the, the roof hysterically mm. in terms of stats. And obviously that's really exciting and really interesting. And, um, and what it does, of course, is it's a, a, a nightly education for yours truly, because if I go in the next morning to, you know, to play a part in running the home desk, um, I know exactly what's played the, the night before. I know exactly um, what people. Yeah, picked.
0: that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Can I Twitter, we,
1: you're not going to make a mistake about this. Twitter is not the public. Mm. Twitter is not the British public. You know, we've found that out many, many, many times. Absolutely. But, but they are a vocal section of mm. the British public, and so yeah, you just it's a it's a really useful guiding stick, if you like, as to sensitive points, controversial points, talking points.
0: Yeah, that's no, all really interesting. And I think just from a personal point of view, someone who trained as a print journalist who, who works in print journalism and who accepts that print journalism is dying, but still very passionate about it. It's still great via what you guys are doing, that it's kind of given a profile, that, you know, there's kind of a reminder that newspapers exist and they do great work. And even if it's just a really sort of really smart or sometimes funny headline and as you say that can then sort of take off or whatever it just keeps newspapers kind of relevant and interesting and and in the public eye a bit more so yeah and as I say I find it interesting important and and just sort of kind of beneficial to the industry as well
1: um I find that I see that's a really really important point session and one I'd just like to pick up on for a second Mm. if I may I mean the reason one of the reasons why I do it is because I do feel this sense of solidarity with other journalists I mean, the last 10, 15 years, 20 years for journalists have been appalling in our country. Absolutely appalling. We've lost not hundreds, but thousands and thousands of jobs from the industry. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's eroded core skills. Um, You know, whole areas of coverage have been paired and shared. I feel very strongly that newspapers and journalism are part of a literate thinking culture in our country. And... You know, and I think in, a, in its little way, you know, Tomorrow's Papers Today, you know, seeks to address a little bit of that in the sense of saying, right, well, we are all journalists together in this. Some of us do things that are wrong. Some of us make mistakes. Some of us are utterly brilliant and do things which are absolutely fantastic. So just, di- and of course, rivalry is part of the game, but at the mm-hmm. same time, we do all have this fellowship. We should be sticking together because ultimately you know, um, it would be so easy to disappear and allow fake news and all the rest of that nonsense to take over.
0: No, absolutely. Yeah, well said. Yeah, especially in the light of of the kind of the threats to journalism as well, even more so as well. Yeah, and you're right on on the industry as well. I mean, I, I trained as a local journalist and the papers I worked for don't exist anymore you know stuff i left it's driving, isn't it yeah it was only as you said about 10 years ago it's not that long ago and they both don't yeah, it's a couple of local papers in london i work for don't exist and even at the guardian which is you know pretty successful and doing well there's there's regular cutbacks just to sort of stay afloat really so yeah the bbc,
1: absolutely- this. The BBC now actively funds some local newspaper mm. reporting which i think is a very constructive thing yeah. but it can't it can't stop the um the dam breaking in terms of the, the business model that's the problem
0: no, absolutely. Absolutely. Very, very difficult time for journalism. Right. Well, let's move on to uh the main reason we're here to talk, Neil. You in you in Jerusalem, me in Beckenham in southeast London. uh Manchester City Football Club. Um fascinating history um you've been a supporter for a, for large periods of it so there's a lot, a lot to sort of talk about and um i was saying to you before we recorded we will we will spend a bit of time near the end of this talking about modern manchester city which may lead to us having quite a heated debate i've got a few things to say but i'm sure will be ultimately <laughs> very friendly uh, but now there's, there's loads loads to get through i mean do my research for this i was like just just remember you know reminding myself of the, the 90s for instance which we'll get into which is an, an absolutely incredible time city but also the years before that as well but let's start with the obvious question Uh, why is Neil Henderson a Manchester City fan?
1: Well I think in the 1960s which was when I was growing up as a little boy in Sale and then in Cheadle you were either one or the other you were either a Manchester United fan or a Manchester City fan my dad um, who uh, was born in 1917 and lived in Withington and then Rushome at one point before the war was with his brothers Joe and Jim a Manchester City fan so uh, and went to the famous 1936 game in Stoke that against Stoke in the FA Cup final sixth round in which something like 85,000 people crammed into Main Road Mm. which was a record at that time and my dad was there so there was no way the family was going to see me support Manchester United after that so growing up in as a little lad in the 1960s in Sale you know obviously it was going to be about Manchester City
0: yeah, I yeah. mean that Ma- Manchester is it is it divided at all in terms of areas of in red and blue? There are sort of some areas which are predominantly red, some are blue. Was it? Yeah, it's kind of flow no, between. You I, could, I
1: had a theory that it might be something to do with um, the way your feet came out at St Mary's. <coughs> you know what I mean? At you, know, you might be born in a certain, you know, a certain orientation to yeah. do with moon or something. And um, if you came out, you know, in one way, you might be a Man City fan, and if you came out another way, you might be a Manchester United. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, the easy joke is all the man you found now live in London. But uh, as a Man City fan who now lives in London, I'm mean, <laughs> Ill, Ill, ill-equipped, ill-equipped <laughs> to post things in that particular. Data. But um, the uh, yeah, the the, the uh, there is no reason. There's no particular geographic thing about supporting Manchester yeah. City or Manchester United. It's um, offices, workplaces in in Manchester are routinely staffed by you know by both. By both colours, if you like, and um, and that's why the derby is so important. Actually, it's it's because um, obviously you know you you got to hold your head up after the weekend, and that's why the derby is Manu you know, Man City derby is just absolutely massively important psychologically in the City still is today.
0: Yeah, I, can imagine. I mean, I did I did a, a placement at the Manchester Evening News, obviously the, the main newspaper in Manchester in 2008. And yeah, just w- walking around that office, working on a sports desk. it was just, it was almost 50-50. Yeah. The sports editor at the time was a, was a red, I think he was a red, but then, you know, there's yeah. some of the... Yeah, and some of the subs and the reports were blues and reds, and other in the yeah. news desk. It was totally mixed. So yeah, I expected you to give that answer. Um, so uh, we'll come on to your first game shortly. You gave me the details of that. It was um, it was in the, right at the start of the seventies, and so going into the seventies, I guess is just when you know you were properly start sporting city. Um, I mean Joe Mercer's the manager at the start of that decade, and under him the club has great success. You win the you win the league in sixty eight, uh, the FA Cup in sixty nine, and the League Cup and the Cup Winners' Cup in nineteen seventy. You're obviously very young at this time, but is there a sense? Do you, do you remember having a sense at that time that you were supporting one of the best, most exciting teams in the country? I mean, that title winning squad in 68 had the likes of Colin Bell, Franny Lee, and Mike Summerby, are all absolute City mm. legends. So, that, I mean, that's a, a great time, I guess, to have been a City fan, to start supporting the club. Well, as well.
1: the truth is, Sasha, I don't really remember because mm. um, there was a sense that City were important. I definitely do remember that. And I remember my dad taking me to my first game, which I think. I think, although my, my memory is very, very sketchy around this, uh, was a Man City versus West Ham match in 1971. And uh, Rodney Marsh scored two goals, which I well, don't really remember.
0: Yeah, well, I can but give you the exact two. date because I was researching this because you said, yeah, you emailed, well, I asked you for some stuff and you, and one of them was your yeah. first game and you said it was 71. You felt, you're pretty sure it was the home game against West Ham at Main Road yeah. in 71-72. It was a
1: Main Road match, do you remember that? Yeah. It was a Saturday afternoon and um i think my dad got there late with me in hand as it were and um we were i'm, I'm pretty convinced we were in the main stand because we we're opposite the kipax and um i do remember this and i also remember the game had actually started when we arrived and i just got a glimpse through the stand of the of the pitch and these players running around on it and they looked like giants and i remember going up the stairs and then into the stadium, which was of course at you know a full volume, and the and I had never been in the company of. I mean, you can get you could get about thirty five thousand people into Main Road at that time. I don't suppose it was full, but I, you know, let's say twenty eight thousand people for the sake of argument.
0: Well, I, can exact, I can tell you exact. I can tell exact attendance. It was thirty eight thousand four hundred eighty eight. I stand uh, corrected. Yeah, and it was and it was on the. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so a big, big crowd, and it was on the it was 8th big, of April. was big
1: Main Road. I don't think it got much bigger than that yeah. in modern era of football, so to speak. And it was on um, the 8th
0: of April, 1972, a 3-1 win for City. And as you said, Roddy Marsh got two goals, Colin Bell yeah. got the other. I don't remember them.
1: What I do remember, Sachin, was walking into that into that environment, walking into Main Road, and just being almost punched in the solar plexus by the noise mm. of the crowd and the sense, the emotion. And the passion and the, you know, the whole atmosphere of it was just amazing. And, and it, I, I will always remember that. It was, the, it was breathtaking. It literally took my breath away. Yeah. You know, that you were in this quite small space, actually, with this number of people all focusing on what was going on. And that I don't think your first football match ever uh, leaves you, does it? For pretty much those reasons. Yeah. I, I, would, I would speculate.
0: No, exactly. I mean, it's just one of the most glorious experiences you have as a as a football fan. That first time going into a stadium, I think everyone experiences it. You know, for some, I think it's seeing the grass and just the green grass, how green it is. Others, it's the floodlights. For some, it's the noise. It felt like for you, it was the number of people and I guess the yeah. noise they were generating as well. And the emotion, a, yeah, wonderful experience, isn't that the emotion. time? And it was
1: very, very strange and a bit yeah. scary. Yeah. actually. I mean, we forget now, Sasha. I mean, football in those days was very dangerous. Mm. It what It was something that Dad's. Well, it mainly dads that took their kids because it was that era. It was something that was thought of as risky. I yeah. mean, in, don't forget, in 1971 we had the Ebrox disaster. Mm. I mean, something like 65 people were killed just trying to leave
0: the ground. Yeah, yeah I mean, so, it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, you know, everything changed post Hillsborough, didn't it? But in the seventies, especially, it was mainly terrac- terracing. Well, I guess very. It was a bit six. of an airbrushing, yeah. if you ask
1: me. Yeah. We had the. I mean. Obviously, I became a journalist in the 1980s. Let's not forget Valley Parade. Yeah. 1987. Fire, yeah, Bradford. Yeah. in nineteen eighty six. Five. Eighty five. yeah. 85, 86. Then obviously Hillsborough. In the 80s, I've got to be honest, I got into cricket Mm. because I just thought I don't want to be part of this. And um, I remember sitting in the um, stand at Old Trafford cricket ground um what what keeping one eye on the cricket and reading the economist and um and the economist describing football and this was post hillsborough as a slum game played in slum surroundings and um and that's what it was viewed as that's yeah. what it was thought of as I mean, it was suffering massively for investment thatcher hated it um there were talk of identity cards the football supporters do you remember
0: yeah yeah yeah, yeah? i mean it was a yeah. bad
1: time yeah. to be a
0: football supporter did you always, have any did you have any specifically bad experiences at, at main road or any other grounds or no, just because of the stuff you're hearing and the stuff you were seeing on, it wasn't uh, yeah.
1: well look i mean i was at radio manchester as a reporter and producer in the 1980s there was a gang a, a, a gang in fact there were several gangs called uh, one of them was called the young governors And they basically haunted the streets around Main Road and orchestrated fights with rival supporters. I mean, they were, in the end, Greater Manchester Police um, staged a two-year-long undercover investigation of the young governors, and it led to convictions. And, um, and, you know, obviously, football started to change radically after 1990 and the World Cup, and the fact that suddenly we decided as a society we wanted to go back to, to football, and there was a massive reinvestment. And that's when obviously a lot of the violence in stands was completely dealt with, with closed circuit TV and all the rest of it. And, um, you know, families were actively um, solicited to come back to football and we did go back to football and um, and it's been a lot better since in my personal view. Okay. You know, and th- at that time, it was a tough, tough period to be a football supporter. And I don't think um, that I really started going to games properly Until um, the end of the 1980s, and then I left and got my first left radio Manchester, got my first proper job in TV at Granada Television in Key Street, and um, and our newsroom was next to the sports room, and it was just impossible uh, not to be infected by the excitement of of the football, and I was starting to deal with football items as part of my job as a producer, so I started going again at that point. And uh, yeah, that's how I got started to go back into it.
0: Oh, that's really interesting. So, so essentially, those sort of formative years in the seventies and obviously the eighties, as you touched on, you were you were pretty much absent from from match. From, I, I, I presume yeah. you saw a lot of fetch for City, but you weren't going to Main Road. You weren't watching games there.
1: You'd watch it on TV. You'd watch it on TV, or oh, at least I would watch it on TV. But it was not what middle class people did, and yeah. know, I, I'm not ashamed to say that it was a class thing. That it was um, a sense that. Um, that the game was not forbidden to us exactly, but just not was not what we were about.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. I, mean, you know, I,
1: mean, I, I was privileged. I wasn't a particularly privileged person. I have to say, I was. Li- li- I lived in a very ordinary little house in mm. Cheetle and I bought my first flat in Longside. You know, obviously, you know, lower <laughs> middle class was where I was, but there was a sense of class distinction. Yeah. You didn't get involved with football because uh, it was risky.
0: No, no, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm 40, and so I, I started watching football in the 90s. But I'm fully aware of how different it was in the 80s and the 70s. Obviously, with the, with the infection, you can say of hooliganism in the game as well, and how yeah. the experience was so different, and how significantly it changed after the Taylor Report in at the start of the 90s. And, and really, yeah. football and now. Because, Taylor Report.
1: It was the Taylor Report session, and it was also the 1990 World Cup.
0: Yeah, yeah, which yeah, yeah.
1: changed everything for football. And made me think and made my friends think that it was time to to go again yeah, and back. start supporting football um i think probably i'll get into trouble with a couple of people at home for saying that but um but I, for me it was definitely that was yeah. definitely the case
0: no absolutely yeah, i think that was a turning point for a lot of people obviously the world cup was a pivotal moment england obviously against the semi-finals that wonderful summer and then obviously with with the sort of all city stadiums coming in afterwards yeah absolutely huge moment so I guess even though the 70s and 80s, you're not going to you're not going to Main Road. I mean, you're still a City fan, I guess. You're still sort of fully invested in the team. And um, I mean, just to talk about that period. So it sort of came up to kind of the Joe Mercy years from the very end of the 60s to the 70s. And then in the 70s, it's quite an up and down, quite dramatic time for City. I mean, Joe, uh, Joe Mercy was involved in his power struggle with his assistant, Malcolm Allison, that eventually leads the latter becoming the manager in 71. Uh, Mercer leaves the following year to become Coventry manager. Allison then leaves uh, himself and joins Crystal Palace in seventy three. Tony Brook takes over uh, and under him, City win the League Cup in seventy six and finish second in the league in seventy seven. Allison then returns in seventy nine and only lasts a year, partly due to a difficult relationship with the then chairman Peter Swale. So a lot happening in the seventies. And I guess, although you're not going to main road, you're, you're sort of, I mean, you're a teenager then I presume at this time as well, obviously quite an exciting time for any football fan. Are you, do, do, those, do you just all remember that time and it being quite dramatic and, eventful and, and, and relatively successful as well?
1: Dad took me from time to time. And I'm talking maybe like once a season,
0: yeah. maybe
1: twice a season, you know, and um, Rick, my best friend, Rick, his dad would take us from time to time as well. So I taught again, it'd be like once or maybe twice a season there. So, yeah, these things were going on, but I'm not sure they were making a huge impression on me as a kid. Okay. Um, I mean, obviously, I followed City and I wanted them to do well. And when, you know, obviously, you know, City put, you know, big strings of victories together in the 70s, I was as, a, as pleased and as excited as everybody and anyone. But I didn't go. And there was a whole generation of football supporters, actually, when you get down to it, who didn't go um you know it's not non-attendance but supporting is not a new thing no, no
0: absolutely so so is it the 90s then you're, you're starting to yeah to get back into it
1: yeah. um well a membership card in i think it was 90 or 91 yeah. and um uh after work on wednesdays um i used to go and pay what was then the princely sum of Summer, eight pounds to stand in the Wow. and um uh yeah so that was yeah, and we were in the we were in the uh, top division. I think the Premier League launched in 1992. Um, Peter Reid was the player manager. We were doing fine. We were finishing fifth or sixth, but everybody was moaning because it's Manchester City, and everybody <laughs> moans. And um, yeah, I started to go a lot at that point. Um, it just made a lot of sense because I was living in Longside, which is only at that ten or well twenty minute walk from from main road so it was dead easy to go and at that time you know it wasn't the performance to get in that it is now uh, you know now you've got well in fairness in the, the etihad a lot of matches you could probably just turn up and buy a ticket but there's membership schemes now isn't there um, uh, yeah. um, obviously a huge season ticket uh, thing and it's massively financial and in those days it was not like that it, There was it was still you was it, it was you know possible to be a football um, supports her on a fairly casual basis and that's that's
0: yeah that's what I did yeah well we'll get into the 90s in a second because I do want to get your thoughts on that decade it was a uh, yeah you know, the decade I remember as I said my sort of formative decade watching football and I remember City's travails in that decade pretty well I do just want to go back to Main Road because um there's obviously some younger listeners to this who, who may not even know that Manchester City had a stadium before the Etihad but they of course did Main <laughs> Road was there Main Road was their home between 1923 and 2003 uh, and it was a proper old school football ground, wasn't it? In the sense that it was genuinely part of the local area. It was it was built around homes in Moss Side in, in Manchester. I mean, you could see it sort of rising over the roofs and chimneys in, in the area. Um, I went there once uh, to watch Liverpool play an FA Cup tie there in January 2003. We won 1-0. It was actually the last ever FA Cup tie to be played at Main Road. Um, and yeah, I just remember walking through the streets in Moss Side to get to that and feeling like I was at a proper old school English football ground there's something very evocative about it um you've got a lovely sort of modern shiny ground now with the the Etihad and obviously loads of success associated with it but do you have a sort of fondness for Main Road what your memories of going there what was the Kipax like obviously the famous stand there
1: um it was uh really basic and you couldn't see properly um yeah well like most stands I guess you know I mean It it was a standing area and um you know obviously uh we all piled in and it was i mean the thing was in the 90s it was it was it it, it was you had a ritual yeah Yeah. so we'd meet in rusho which was about a mile from the ground um you know half one two-ish we'd have we'd had our favorite pub to go to um where we'd have a couple of pints then we'd walk to the ground and you know experience what we were going to experience together and then we'd go home, and sometimes we'd have a curry. I think if we'd won, and it's—I I, I think the the uh, the ritual, if you like, of, of football is probably underestimated as a as a glue which keeps the sport going. But it is a, a ritual, and uh, particularly it solidifies when you've got friends uh, that are going through things with you. And um, yeah. So, yeah, they, it's the ritual. And the um, I've got to be honest, I have no particular affection for it. I know that's going to be an absolute, you know, terrible lack of faith and I'll be, you know, have things thrown at me on the internet and things. But, <laughs> I, I rem- but the problem was I was five foot seven, five foot eight, you know, and if everybody's standing in front of you, yeah. um, then you're not going to be able to see properly. Uh, and as soon as anything gets near either of the goals, everybody starts jumping. So you can't see properly what's quite mm-hmm. going on. It's a brilliant atmosphere. And it was completely kind of, yeah, it was totally being the fan. And, and But if I'm honest, um, if I sit down, uh, if I sat, if I bought a seat in the opposite main stand, yeah, I would understand and think, of, think about more what the football was actually mm-hmm. doing and sort of enjoy the game more than if yeah. I actually stood in the kip yeah, there Yeah, it was noisy and funny, and the songs were brilliant in the kip hacks, but uh, in the main stand, which was a, little, a bit more, if you like, cerebral, you could actually see what was going on, and you could sort of appreciate more, um, you know, the nature of the agony as it was in the 1990s.
0: Yeah, so the Kipax is one of the stands behind one of the goals, was it? It was one of the stands no, behind. One.
1: It was. It was the Kipax was um, the, the opposite of the main stand. It oh, okay. Was, it was on the side, of it? And either end.
0: Oh, okay. Fair enough. Yeah, so I said, went. I so said I went to Main Road that one time, January two thousand three. We were in the away end, and I wasn't quite sure which stand was the Kipax, but I knew it's the famous stand at Main Road where yeah. my, the most boisterous kind of singing. And there was a corner from. as
1: well. that was next to the Kipax, which was really, really quite heavy in the seventies when I remember seeing it when I was there um, when, you know, when my dad took me mm. and it was like, it was genuinely thought of as, you know, a little bit of the other. And um, in fact, they shut it during the 1980s, I think. And uh, yeah, and that was the gap between um, home fans and away fans.
0: Yeah. And just want to go back to what you said about the ritual. I, I absolutely agree as, as a match go myself, you know, I think this is something that people who, who don't go to games perhaps realise is, it's not just those ninety minutes when you're a match goer. That's so that just draws you in all the time. It is, as I said, having a pint before the game with your mates. That excitement that builds in the pub when the team news drops, and, and having a laugh and catching up with people you only see at football, you only see in the pub before football. And yeah, so I totally get that. And that walk to the ground as the excitement builds as you as you hear the noise. If it's a night game, you hear you see the floodlights sort of appearing over over the hill or whatever. And uh, yeah, now just as you were saying, I was nodding away. I just yeah, for me, going to football is. It's not, it is very much not just the 90 minutes. It's everything. Yeah. And um, it's the whole experience, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And then the extra that, I mean,
1: yeah, it's a brilliant stadium. I'm not going to knock, knock it. And you can see exactly what's going on, but it's not as noisy. Mm. You know, it just, it, it's got the songs, but it hasn't, and it's still got brilliant fans, obviously, but it hasn't got quite the atmosphere of Main Road. Uh, mm. I'll, You know, I've got to say that. And uh, it's got a couple of decent pubs. You can have a drink in on the way to the match, that's okay. Um, but obviously, you're missing out on the Curry Mile that was in Rush Home at the time, uh, different now. And, um, and they kind of you know gradually that because they decided to, to do this in East Manchester, which was in sore need of massive investment, would never argue about the brilliant things that are being achieved now in East Manchester. Um, but it was in huge need. Of, but it's mm-hmm. kind of like not very many people live there. And it's quite interesting that City have recently announced that they're going to actually build houses in East Africa. Okay. Yeah. They are actually going to, as well as putting massive sporting facilities in and really investing in, in that kind of infrastructure, um, they are also going to build a community mm. as well and refurbish the community because, you know, it's suffered terribly from all sorts of bits of deprivation and unemployment. And all of that now is being addressed as part of the Manchester City project, and in in partnership with Manchester City Council. So that actually, you know, I've got one eye on that as I live in in um, in London, and I just think that's fantastic.
0: Yeah. Now I've been to the Etihad a few times, and yeah, it is um, very different to Main Road. It's like it's one. It's like the modern ground, like the Emirates, is very much where it's it's kind of like a spaceship that's sort of dropped into you yeah. know an, an open space. It, it's very open. There's a lot of. It isn't that. Isn't what Main Road had, which is, as you say, where you can go have a curry and a pint, like almost on the corner by the ground, and there's just that sort of general mill and hubbub of people. If you're anywhere near the Etihad, it is just match goers walking into the ground because everything else is quite far away from it, isn't it? So it's a very different modern experience. There's some
1: housing opposite here, um, and there will be some more. And and now, obviously, you've got this massive campus opening. Mm. Because obviously there's a whole infrastructure for women's football. as well as the academy which is like a completely right across the spectrum of ages football Mm. approach that manchester city now does and all of that requires infrastructure and stadiums and all the rest of it it's pretty extraordinary what's going on there and uh, yeah i mean go when it's not a match day because it'll blow your head off
0: yeah
1: now Try
0: to absolutely try to right. Let's get back to the nineties, an absolutely uh, extraordinary city. Your 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 decade getting back into being a a Manchester City match goer. The decade I remember, my formative decade watching football generally, and it was uh, it was let's uh, uh, best way to put it. It was a crazy time for City. So, I think for me, the standout statistic of the nineteen nineties for Manchester City (laughs) is they had six different managers during that decade. uh, Starting off with Peter Reid, who you mentioned, then moving on to Brian Horton, Alan Ball. Steve Koppel, Frank Clark and Joe Royal. Coppel uh, famously quit after 33 days. Alan Ball was a man who took you down to the second tier, the then first division in 1996.
1: We had a, we had a special song for Alan Ball, which, went, which, which was like, was like Wonderwall. Uh, yeah. uh, oh, of course. Yeah. 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 And yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, no, I do remember that. Yeah. So um, so that's all going on. Very, very tumultuous. Um, you get relegated. You've not got a very good team. You've got a conveyor belt of managers. And while this is all going on, um, just to add salt to the wounds, Manchester United are becoming the best team in the country. And of course, in 1999, win the treble as well. Um, Is it fair to say that decade was a really, really difficult time to be a City fan?
1: Well, it was. Um, There was somebody, there's a Jewish author in um, Manchester who wrote a brilliant book called Manchester United Ruined My Life.
0: Yeah, yeah, aware of that. Yeah, I think it turned into drama as well, didn't it? Yeah. uh, 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 TV drama,
1: I should say. uh, To my shame, I forget his name now, but I did read the book and obviously it struck massive chords. Yeah, it was. But we do, we talk about it now. And we tend to think that while, yeah, obviously there were moments of intense disappointment, (laughs) to put it lightly. Uh, The the weird thing is a binding time for Manchester City supporters. You know, we had this defensive refrain that, you know, City, you know, we're a big club and we'd be in the third tier. 28,000 people would turn up, you know, to see us play Macclesfield. And um, it was a time when City just refused to be broken. You know and um,
0: yeah, yeah. We just made you stronger in a way, I guess, all, yeah, all in the, a weird all way. Yeah, yeah.
1: And some, of the, some of the trips and adventures that we had in the 90s, I'll never forget. Some of it, like some of the matches that we played, and some of the players that we had, um, are legends at City now and will always be just considered to be, you know, heroes, mm. and um, and sometimes. I'm, it just shows, actually, what, a, what a, a, bad, a bad emotion, a nostalgia is. Sometimes we're actually nostalgic <laughs> about those times.
0: It's mad, given you know what, mean? what you're achieving now as well,
1: yeah.
0: It's tricky <laughs> to go to away
1: matches now. I mean, uh, my friends will argue with me about this, but in those days, of course, it was not tricky to go to away matches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, the away matches were at places like Luton and Millwall, I had the most frightening time of my life at Millwall, actually. It was a very, very scary...
0: Did you say Millwall, you had a frightening time? Yeah. I've yeah, had was... my most frightening experiences in the way you found at Millwall as well. It does sadly live up to the, to the stereotypes, doesn't it, Millwall away? Yeah. It's, it's not a pleasant trip.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, at that time, just looking at my notes here, Andy Morrison, who we'd signed for £80,000 for skipper in the side, he was, well, he was, we were in the third tier. Yeah. And he was he was one of, he was one of the hard men. And he basically would wind up the other side, uh, would carve into them, uh, and he would wind up the supporters. And the Millwall supporters just started going absolutely mental. Mm. And I think City won the match. It didn't seem very relevant because I think the Millwall fans wanted to kill us. And um, we were told to remain in the stand afterwards. And we did for 10 minutes. And then 10 minutes became 15 minutes. Then it became half an hour. Then we were finally allowed out into the car park. The, the police had cordoned off the car park and waiting outside the police cordon were the Millwall fans.
0: Uh-huh.
1: They were waiting for us to come out yeah. so they could attack us. And uh, Dennis Stewart um, got onto um, the roof of a car and addressed the crowd and basically chilled us out. And there were songs and all the rest of it. And eventually the Millwall fans lost patience and attacked the police. I've never seen anything like it. Yeah. And um, and then that was diffused in a, after about an hour an hour and a half, and we were finally allowed to to leave the the new den and I was walking we were walking down the streets, and there were just vans of police parked down the streets with battered bloodied police officers sitting on the backs of the vans and uh, i, I don 't know how many arrests there were that night, but um, yeah it was it was a scary time it wasn 't all that right obviously.
0: No, that, I mean, that <laughs> chime. Yeah.
1: But that bit was like
0: that. No, I see. And, and i tell you what, that chimes so, mu- so much with uh, my experience in Millwall. I went to see Liverpool play there in the League Cup time in 2004, and exactly that. Um, we, we won 3 0 with a team of kids, basically. Rafa Benitez put out a reserve team, and we won. And it riled the Millwall fans up. There were chairs and coins being thrown at us. I think we were kept back for almost two hours because they were outside waiting for us by Bermondsey station, South Bermondsey station. And police said, if you go out, you'll get battered, basically. So you better stay where you are. And even when we got out, there were still fans waiting for us. It was an absolutely terrifying experience. I mean, I've got a lot of affection for Millwall. I live quite close to the den where I am now. I've covered quite a few games there as a journalist. And the staff at Millwall are absolutely lovely and uh, i have interviewed players there. They're all great as well. They really try hard to to put on a, a positive face for that club. And it's a real community club as well. There's fantastic work in the community around yeah. South London, but sadly, a large chunk of their fans just just let that club down. It's it's a, it's a huge it's shame. A good um yeah. Well. Just to stay in the '90s for a bit longer, um yeah. you said that some of the players became became legends, and I I, th- yeah. I think it's fair to say perhaps the most legendary player that decade was Georgie King Clancy. Yeah, um, he is one of my favourite footballers um all time. Genuinely, I, I'm yeah. a Liverpool fan, but I adored King Clancy watching him during the '90s. I met him once
1: at Manchester Airport.
0: Oh, fantastic! And, well, I, um, we'll just get your thoughts I on I him. But I just
1: I, I actually got on my knees. And just...
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just going to say for people who who maybe listen to this who. Perhaps don't even know who Georgie Kinkladze was. And I'll let you speak about him and a fuse about him um, just now in the second, Neil. But yeah, he was a Georgian midfielder who signed for City in July 1995. Uh, he came for £2 million from Dynamo Tbilisi um, after being spotted by Franny Lee. who was then the chairman of the club. And he was just an incredibly creative player, wasn't he? Wonderful technique, wonderful imagination, and probably scored City's best goal of the decade, uh, which was that, that second goal, his second goal in that two all draw with Southampton at Main Road in March of 1996. And I think what really sort of cemented him in the affections of City fans is even when he went down um, to, the, to the second tier, to the second division, oh, sorry, the first division in 1996, mm-hmm. you did, as you said, he got relegated again uh, to the the old second division, the third tier in 1998. But when he went down the first time, he stayed with the club as well. So yeah. he, he played with you. Uh, he played for the team even after you got relegated. Um, and he was kind of, you know, head and shoulders above anyone in that division. And well, uh, City yeah, a big
1: club. That's why he stayed. That's City why was so that's a, he
0: stayed. But he was, um, he was just a remarkable player, wasn't he? He was just so talented. The
1: problem was that um, no one else was really quite as talented no. as him. And um, whereas he would have thrived in um, a side run by Pep or even Pellegrini, he was obviously playing in, in the lower leagues of English football, and his, and I think actually, there was a mental bridge crossed with Georgie Cclancy at times, because he, he, um, there were times when he would appear but would not actually be playing. And there are times when he would appear start playing properly, and the other Manchester City fan players would stop to watch him. uh, (laughs) that's not good (laughs) good good. the the, the Southampton um, the Southampton game I was there at oh really yeah but the problem was I was at the other end of the the, uh, ground so I couldn't really see what he'd done um, so I only saw it on match the day afterwards and obviously you you can get it on on YouTube he goes to about three players and then he just drops his shoulder and puts it past the goalkeeper it's fantastic and the point about Georgie was not obviously that goal in particular, although it took the roof off. But he—it he, was about that—that that skill and that flair, and you know, those were really dreadful times. You no, know, we're nostalgic about them. I mentioned that, but we—but they were dead, dreadful times. That I would sit there with my mates, and it would be like you know, in the main stand sometimes, and it would be like, "Oh God, here we go again!" When the dying whistle went, mm. and um but King Clancy just—he was a, a ray of light in a dark place. And um, when yeah, it'll always be love for that. Kim Kladzi will try and beat his man and suddenly space opens up. Still Kim Kladse. are a few other players like of that era who will also be loved um, because they took City through that very, very dark period. Pe- people like Nicky Weaver, um, who was a goalkeeper. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, obviously he saved um, the crucial penalty shootout at the, um, the third tier playoff against Gillingham and then went on this berserk <laughs> run around Wembley. And, um, you know, after that, obviously, legend. You know, it was a tough time. You know, going through all those managers was very difficult. You got the sense that the, the club wasn't properly owned or run. Um, there was some lamentable stuff around uh, the great Peter Swales towards his departure. Um, Franny Lee ended up um, being the chairman of the club and basically not really being able to invest any money. Then we went through Thatch and Um and Kevin Keegan, mm. and obviously, and well, before that, Joe Royal, and and we came up again properly under Kevin, and um, and yeah, that's another debt we'll never, we'll never pay off, you know, yes. the psychic debt.
0: Just go back to that period of the 90s. It's really interesting you talking about that because you know my sense was it was just absolutely dreadful. It was absolutely dire time. But no, the way you've spoken I generally... I
1: agree with your
0: question. Yeah, no, well, I'm just going to come to that point is that it sounds like, you, well, you've already said it, it was a lot of pride taken. Obviously, it, it, it binded and bonded the City fans, but actually had a lot of pride in the team. So was it generally a case that King Clancy aside there wasn't much quality in that team of the 90s and the early noughties. But actually, well, no, in terms quality. of effort, there was, there, was, there was loads of that. And they tried. Yeah, they really there was cared. At-
1: effort. There was attitude. Yeah. Um, sometimes we'd go away thinking, yeah, people were just not present. But a lot of the time there was, yeah. Um, Morrison was one of those people as well that, you know, when we were in the third tier, he was a hero to us. Mm. Because he was a Scottish player. He would le- literally beat his chest in the tunnel before he would come out. I mean, that he was that scary. And um, City needed players like that, needed attitude like that. And we really got behind, you know, the team. And actually, although I say that and I look back now and I, I wondered whether we got this reputation, City fans, for masochism, actually, almost mm-hmm. wanting to fail because then we could have the, if you like, the honour badge of trauma. Yeah. that we had been through this terrible terrible period and going through this terrible period and it was all awful and somehow we were still there and that was us because we were brilliant fans and now of course it's completely different completely the other side of the coin okay. and that's a very interesting transition to have witnessed at first hand
0: how 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 true was that then how how much did you did city fans kind of almost revel in 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 your failure at the time or what, what, you know did you actually did, did you actually just want to be good again, or did you actually take pride in the fact that you were living through this dark period and it was binding you all together as fans?
1: Always pride in the batch. Yeah. Um, but, but if I'm being honest, there was this sense, and you, I, if you go back to the press coverage at the time and the fanzines at the time, there was this sense of taking some pleasure in the pain. Don't what? ask me to in, expand on that. I'm not a psychologist, but there was something going on that was like that yeah don't ask me about it i don't understand it
0: yeah well i think i i mean i can almost i think you know i think leeds fans had it to an extent as well where when it's so bad you almost you kind of know it will almost not be as bad as this so you almost kind of buy into it fully and go look if we can get through this we'll remember this time and we'll be able to say we lived through this and i said there's almost a pride that we stuck we stuck with the team through this dark time. So then, yeah, you almost kind of feed off it. I guess there's some, sort yeah. Of now, nowadays, that. you
1: know, when opposition fans, where were, you, where were you when you were?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. say like we were there. We were They're there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We were here. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. What, sorry, sorry. Tell me about the King Clancy story. I cut you off then. What, what happened? Oh, you so I met him
1: at Manchester airport. He was coming home from Georgia, no doubt with his family. Yeah. And I was, I think I was there on the job. I don't think I was even traveling. I was meeting someone else. And, um, Uh, Yeah, I I mean, obviously he's just like this bemused character and I fell (laughs) on my knees like, not, we're not worthy of you. (laughs) He was that kind of figure in Manchester at the time. He was like Godlike because he brought this incredible skill and and obviously everything he did was marvellous.
0: You mentioned the playoff final. I do want to talk about that because it's arguably one of the most important games in, in Man City's history. So just to give a bit of context, you have references. City got relegated to the old first division, the second tier in 1996. They then got relegated to the old um, second division, the third tier in 1998. So in 98-99 season, they were playing in the third tier of English football uh, they were coming up against teams like Wrexham, and Walsall, Lincoln and Colchester mm. as well. Promotion was obviously an absolute priority for City to get out of that division as quickly as possible. You got to the player final, 30th of May, 1999, faced Gillingham at Wembley. All the pressure on City, obviously the big club, that's the team that has to get promoted. Gillingham, it was their first ever appearance at Wembley, so there was very little pressure on them. They were managed by Tony Pulis at the time as well. Um, and they went 2-0 up with two very late goals in the 81st and 87th minutes. Scored by Carlos Saba and Robert Taylor. Two really good goals, actually. I was watching the highlights back mm. again uh, yesterday in preparation for this. Two really good goals. So it was all pretty much done and dusted. City were going to lose. But then came the comeback. Kevin Horlock scored in the 90th minute. And then, what? fair to say, possibly the second most famous goal in Man City's history. Paul Dickoff in the 95th minute yeah. getting the equaliser. You then won on penalties 3-1. As you mentioned, Nicky Weaver, the hero in the penalty shootout with with two saves um yeah did you just want to talk about your memories of that day and, yeah um... i wasn't there
1: i had a ticket for the match i couldn't bear to watch it i just knew that i di- i just didn't have the mental strength and i think i, I think i was finding the 90s quite personally <laughs> <difficult>. <laughs> i
0: can imagine as, as, yeah, uh, as a as well city as, fan yeah
1: as well as i think i was finding it both personally and professionally difficult <laughs> never, mind, never mind the football and i yeah. gave up my ticket for um uh for, to phil's dad so, and I so I watched it on oh. television. The, the, the folklore is that the Gallagher's left at the 85th minute, and then had to get back in. Oh, Most really? of and had to get back in. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I mean, I wasn't there, as I say, but um, I watched it on the telly. But what can you say? That that was an amazing match. the yeah. other important match in Manchester City's history, I absolutely was there for, which was the uh, winning of the first time. Had ever won the Premier League in 2011, but let's talk about that later. We'll
0: come on to that later. Yeah, I mean, that, that game against Gillingham is, has gone down in folk clubs. Paul Dickoff's goal is uh, is kind of has been replayed endlessly as well. Yeah. Great celebration afterwards, I always think, when he sort yeah. of slides on his knees and he's pounding his
1: fists. Uh, Pulis took off his attackers in the 85th minute. In the 86th, he, he substituted his attackers. Yeah. It was a classic, classic error
0: yeah i mean yeah well you must i just thought the game was done wasn't it was it eighty? you know yeah. what What, what the minutes again you're know, 81st and 87 minutes though so 87 minutes, gillingham went two nil up yeah you think it's done but i guess that then led to as they taking attackers off gave city obviously gillingham i presume dropped mm-hmm. quite far back and then obviously city went for the juggernaut and uh and and scored those two goals i mean two two questions about that day obviously you watch a game on telly just how important do you think that game is in city's history if they don't get promoted in nineteen ninety nine. Do you think they don't get promoted at all? And was it perhaps even the fear they could sink even further? They could just keep sliding down the divisions.
1: City are a big club. I keep saying this. And uh, that's what we kept saying to each other. City are a big club. We were always going to come back somehow. A fan base of 28,000 plus mm. in the third tier, unheard of. So that kind of, if you like, that kind of thing is a critical mass. And that will propel you up the table because you're always going to have a good financial base. And a, base, and a club with that kind of tradition, you could see how if, we, if, hypothetically, we had lost at that playoff, it would have been difficult. But I, I actually can't see City staying down there that long. You could argue that City might have come up, might have found themselves staying in the second tier for longer than they did. But in the final analysis, that's not what happened. And how far do you want to entertain hypotheticals? You know, the fact is things worked out very, very differently. Yeah. Um, you know under Joe Royal and then he came to Kevin Keegan so yeah so it, yeah, who knows yeah you do think it's one of those crossroads but then I also have you know those of us who study history bow sometimes to a theory about historical inevitability don't we and, and we, we move across personalities and look at structures and uh, you know hierarchical influences and all that and you get the feeling that City being a big club
0: mm-hmm. would
1: never really have been sat in the doldrums you know, forever. You think, don't you? I think, oh, well, then I think so. But then, then again, when river Leeds river got river
0: relegated river. in 2004, I didn't think it would take them until 2020 to get back to the Premier League. And you, so you, yeah. some of these big clubs, you just think they'll get back, they'll get back. But even yeah. like look at Forest as well. I mean, they haven't been back in the Premier League since 1999, I think, as well. So yeah. you do sort of fear, as I mean, as you say, in the 90s, one of the issues at City was they weren't run very well, Peter Swales and then, and then, yeah. and then yeah. Fanny yeah. Lee. And if a club yeah. isn't run very well, it doesn't matter how big they are. They can just keep They sinking. There are moments move. where, yeah,
1: there, there's a book, a fan-published book called Cups for Cockups mm-hmm. which I actually have on my shelf and um, it's got a picture I'm afraid of Franny Lee on the front it was a fan published book but it talks about things like you know the fact that we got relegated once when when we decided to um, kick the ball around in the corner because we thought that Liverpool were yeah. winning or something well that
0: was a relegation um, from yeah, the Premier League in, somebody, yeah. in the
1: stand, somebody in the stand shouted a score to, yeah, them, yeah. to the management and and they misunderstood it or something and we stopped playing and we ended up being, losing and ending up going relegated. Yeah. I mean, that sort of thing happened at City a lot.
0: Yeah. Well that, well, that was a relegation from the Premier League in 96. Yeah. You yeah. played Liverpool on the last day. You, I think the final score was two all. And yeah. it was thought that two all would be enough. But actually, and so as you said, the ball was taken to the corner. But actually, yeah. City needed to win because of results elsewhere. So,
1: yeah. When Joe so, Royal took over, he said, he told this story that he would walk through the main road buildings and and the stand and he would bump into players that he didn't know Uh, yeah but the squad had had built to i think something around like 60 players
0: some of whom he did not know that's just so mad. that was yeah.
1: how crazy the whole period had got.
0: Yeah, as you say, ter- poor a poorly run club in in that period. I mean, just that season 98-99, when you're in the third tier, the old second division. I mentioned there, you're going to places like Macclesfield, Wrexham, Walsall, Lincoln, Colchester. Sound like you you made some of those trips. I mean, what are your memories of those times? What what was some of the strangest grounds you went good times. to?
1: Perhaps. I remember going to Luton with my mates, and yeah, good times because the away matches are way better in atmosphere than home. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because if you sing the songs really loudly, right. everyone's piled in together. Um, I remember one of the Luton matches as well. I um, um, remember Nicky Weaver uh, practicing in the goal, not five meters away from where I was, with Alex Stepney, the goalkeeping coach, Manchester goalkeeping legend. Yeah. and yeah. yeah. And it was just this, and he was chatting to the crowd and chatting to us. And there was that intimacy then that you don't have now. Now, You know Manchester City has got this apparent Premier fan experience of like they're allowed behind a glass wall in the tunnel, and they pay thousands and thousands of quid for it, and the the players walk past you in in the in this tunnel area, and then you can go out and sit behind the sit behind the bench, and that's and you pay thousands and thousands and thousands of quid for it. But I all that had all that fifteen quid back in the nineties.
0: Um, Well, we should say you've been kind enough uh, to do an all-time City eleven. I always ask guests who come to this podcast. Yeah, well, smashing. OK, well, we'll come on to that. I, I was just about to say, yeah, get guests who come on this podcast to do an all-time city 11 based on uh, well, all-time 11 based on the best 11 players they've seen during their time in their club. Neil has done perhaps the most interesting all-time 11 for the simple fact <laughs> it has 12 players in it. And Nicky Weaver and Georgie Kincladzi, who we both mentioned, are, are both in it. We'll come on to it later, but it does sound like you've made some changes to it as well. But we'll come on to that later. Yeah. Yeah. Before we okay. do before we do uh before we get on to your all-time 11 let's let's talk then about modern manchester city and this is where it could get a bit spicy between myself and neil um so right it's been a period of incredible success obviously um since 2008 since the the takeover in 2008 five league titles two fa cups six league cups and in may just gone a champions league final appearance as well not to mention you've had loads of great players and under pep guardiola especially loads of great football as well Um, from the outside at least though to me as a a Liverpool fan it should be said it does feel as if City fans have perhaps not enjoyed it as much as they should because of a collective kind of anger and annoyance with the reminders and references they get to how the club's success has basically been built on money a top-down revolution lacking in any sort of romance a sense of story now I've fallen out with quite a few City supporting friends over this it's been a real kind of dark sort of thing for me really i've had some friends who i've just basically had big arguments with and not spoken to since over this i've received also a lot of abuse from city fans in general for daring to mention any of this on social media and i know other people have as well fellow journalists as well as friends my stance on this Neil, is quite simple which is city fans by all means now, enjoy your success have street parties dance in the aisles at the etihad when you win trophies but you just you can't have your cake and eat it basically you've got to accept that the reason you're doing so well now is essentially because of the money. And you really can't get sort of frustrated and angry with that. You've just got to take it on the chin. You know, I don't want to keep getting net spend figures on Twitter from City fans which show that actually City have spent less money than other clubs. I don't want all the mean, the rent-free inside your head means. I don't want all the whataboutery. And I definitely, definitely don't want the constant claims of a media bias agenda against City because there simply isn't one um so I've said all that Neil and now I'm happy for you <laughs> to come back at me all guns blazing and actually in all seriousness I'm really curious for your take on all everything I've just said there and also whether you do feel that the success city have had under Guardiola especially has not got the credit it deserves and how you and City fans you know personally have embraced the success of the sort of shape man years in general but also reacted to all the it comes that it's all down to money stuff and eventually is it a case of water of a duck's back or does it it really great with you as well does it get sort of quite annoying uh
1: no because uh i love i love supporting manchester city and i love going to the games that i can get to with my friends and i love watching the club as it is now the team as it is now they play this fantastic football that's beautiful to watch absolutely beautiful I mean, um, it, you know, they call it the beautiful game. Sometimes it gets ugly, doesn't it? But when you watch Man City pass the ball around and, um, and control the game, pro use skill to, to, um, to wipe out midfields and defenders, um, to uh, continually be tactically adjusting under Pep Guardiola, who's quite obviously a genius. And to be able to sit down and watch that and then stand up and dance around when, you know, City score or Guero scores or whatever, or Phil Foden, a kid from Stockport, who Guardiola is shaping to be one of the most important players in English football history. You you know, you want to feel bitter about that? No, I'm not going to feel yeah. bitter about that. <laughs> I'm going to feel joyous, quite frankly. And I have to say, the last 18 months um, supporting Manchester City, has been a very binding time for me and my friends because we've been able, because Manchester football was one of the only things that was happening, wasn't it? Mm, the the true, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, mm-hmm. Meeting up online, being able to meet for a half-time Zoom for a chat about football and, and life, and then just go back and watch half an hour, another half an hour, 45 minutes of a really terrific football has been a joy, has been a psychological boom. And, you know, Sure, we didn't win the European Cup this year, but, you know, we will. And and um, and it will be great. And everything that City does will be great from here on in. And um, money and jealousy are two great powering um, facets of football, and that's always going to be the case. It was the case in the 70s. People would point the finger at Man U because they had an academy process and money that was signing players at ridiculously young ages. That was the allegation, and it's an allegation that is now you know, pointed at Manchester City and other big clubs, that money is somehow the only thing that talks. Well, actually, no. When you watch the game, you see this incredible skill, this fabulous talent being paraded in front of you. Um, it's a joy. It's uplifting. These are fabulous days for football, fabulous days for Manchester City, and I'm just going to celebrate that. Thank no.
0: Yeah, that's no, that's a great answer. As I mean, as I said, you know, just to sort of reiterate my stance on it, I have no issue with City fans celebrating the success they've had. You know, the football is incredible; nobody can deny that. You've got some absolutely fantastic players as well, and but I, it's just a personal thing I've experienced. And I, as I said, I've had fellow friends' experiences, and I've had fellow journalists' experiences. I mean, you know, there's a there's a there's a journalist. Um, let me get his name right. Neil McGeeken, who raises issues around uh, the human rights record of of City's owners in, you know, obviously Sheikh Mansur, the, you know, from Abu Dhabi. And they're just yeah, they're just quite a, there is quite a rush and quite an outpouring of sort of bitterness and anger and frustration and fury from City fans. that I've experienced online mainly, I should say, not people I know in person. I know City fans at work, for instance, who aren't like this, but it does. And as you say, it's, Twitter isn't real life it's you know it's no, it's, it's just a it's uh a, it's a kind of heightened version of fury at many times but yeah just you know as i said i you know i welcome city fans to enjoy their their success but I it can get quite wearing when whenever someone mentions hang on this is down to you know essentially winning the lottery that you then get sort of hit with a load of abuse and sort of you know uh, accusations of agenda and stuff but it doesn't feel like you've got that at all you are just fully yeah, it's boring sidebar it's fantastic enough.
1: Yeah, so such a boring sidebar because ultimately, um, what counts is the football, and what counts is the goals. This what counts, Fair and we get loads of goals at, at Man and we get loads of amazing football, and um, and some brilliant games. When frankly, it's been a privilege to be, you know, it's a privilege privileged to watch it.
0: I think, and I think that's really.
1: Days of football that I've ever seen
0: yeah no totally and I think actually what you just said there as well was really touching about the past 18 months that during lockdown it seems to have meant more to you especially because of the fact you, you've you been disconnected from family and friends you haven't obviously been able to go to, to games as well and yeah. yeah so it feels like it's brought you a lot of solace as well which yeah it's just really touching I think
1: yeah it, it, football brings us together in ways mm. that um, are really important and um, yeah and sporting a club brings you together doesn't it and and it's yeah it's about ritual it's about um the periodic contact and the interest that you can share and the bonding that comes from that so mm. yeah it's it's really important really really important and it's important for me at Man City and it's important for everyone at every other company.
0: no absolutely and um, I said Paul Dickoff's goal against Gillingham was the second most uh famous goal in Man City's history and you did you did reference the first let's talk about it because I, I said maybe there's not a lot of romance and story around city well there is one incredible moment and a a sense of story around one goal in particular, uh, well, off aside, and that is, of course, Sergio Aguero's goal against QPR on Sunday, 13th of May, 2012. That sealed Man City's first Premier League title. Uh, Aguero, as it's known on the back of Martin mm-hmm. Tyler's famous uh, commentary. Uh, you said you were there at the Etihad. I mean, yeah, just talk, was, yeah. talk to me about that day. It must have been absolutely incredible. I was walking
1: the, was walking the dog in... Uh, I went to see my dad with um, a dog that I... It's just a long story um I (laughs) I I had a Labrador well he wasn't really mine he was was called Russ he was an enormous Labrador um and he was a guide dog and belonged to one of my friends and he'd retired so I used to take him on the train um to Manchester to see my dad who at that time was very very old and was living in Cheadle and um and I was walking um the dog on the golf course or near the golf course and um my mobile rang and it was my mate Tarek and he said, do you want to come to the match this afternoon? So I said, OK, let's do it. And um, it was the best game of football that I've ever seen, could ever be, will ever exist, probably. And yeah, the Aguero goal was fantastic. And again, Manchester City supporters left the ground. They left I'm the ground at the 85th, 86th minute. They walked out and, um, and then they had to rush back in because we won. And I even have a little video of it in my phone somewhere of everybody just going completely bananas. Manchester City are still
0: alive here. Balotelli, Aguero! itself from second fiddle for so long in their own city to top club in the country Manchester
1: City and of course the joy of this was that not that we had won the Premier League, didn't really care about winning the Premier League, the point was that we deprived Manchester United <laughs> of winning the Premier League yeah, yeah. and in fact there was a moment where the Manchester. if you look at the video, there is a moment where Manchester United clearly think they've won the Premier League and then Ferguson realises that they haven't and he has to get his boys off Because they've come second to the noisy neighbors, Manchester City. And that's that, at that point, a lot of healing took place. Can you imagine?
0: Is that the healing from the 90s, from that period of the 90s? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. A lot of healing. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, wow. Yes. Is, that, is that So when Aguero puts that ball past, uh, I can't remember the QPR goalkeepers on the day, I think it might have been Paddy Kenny, maybe, or Rob Green, perhaps. Anyway, it doesn't matter. So, but when he scores that goal in the, whatever it was, a 96-minute, was your, I mean, obviously you're going mad, It's absolute bedlam at, at the Etihad, you're probably hugging everyone, Tarek, your mate, and everyone around yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. But was your kind of, once you calmed down, just from that immediate moment of bedlam, was your first reaction, we've stopped Man United in the league, or was it, oh my God, Manchester City are champions? No, Manchester United been stopped from winning the league. Oh, that's interesting. I <laughs> <We just> don't <laughs> understand what's going on. Here. <laughs> well, that, well, well, I don't Tennessee know. it's a really
1: important part of football. Yeah. yeah, it really is. And and Manchester United have had bragging rights for decades. Yeah, and you you can't underestimate the the psychic scars that that has left.
0: That's interesting. So yeah,
1: we'd won and it was great, but the. The enormous red cherry on the cake was the fact that Man U had come yeah. Absolutely fantastic. And if you remember that season, Manchester City had just put win after win after win together yeah. and won on goal difference. Yeah, so that was just the slightest edge. And Sergio had put it away and just he was our hero forever after that. And um, yeah, what can you say? A lot of healing happened that afternoon.
0: That's really fascinating for me. I, I mean, I'm obviously aware that it meant a lot to City fans, not just to win the league, but that you stopped Man United winning, who we should say were playing Sunderland away yeah. at the same time. And as you say, there's those famous. I think images it was of, raining there. Yeah, there's those famous images of it was United sunny fans. sunny where we in,
1: were, but it was raining there.
0: Yeah, there's famous images <laughs> of United, United fans in the stands, sort of celebrating, and then suddenly stopping because wordy got through that Aguero yeah. score. But for me, that's really interesting that if sat well. It doesn't sound like it. Obviously, it is the case for you that it meant as much, if not more, that you stopped United winning the yeah. league than it did that you won the league yourself that day. I this is a this possible. is a
1: really key point, which some of us, including me, moan about. Pat is that he doesn't get the Manchester United thing. He doesn't. I mean, I think he. And I think obviously there's a part of him that knows it's extremely important, and we mm. would very much like to win it. And the players definitely get that, but somehow we don't think he totally gets it because they they keep beating us. And that's just, this is not what we want. <laughs> if, even if we, had a meet, if we have a mediocre season, but we've beaten Manchester United a couple of times in that season, it's not a bad season.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Even though you are the bigger fish in Manchester now in terms of success, this feels like it's still that, that sort of complex with United. Absolutely.
1: Although this last season and the season before, Liverpool has started to be the problem. Yeah. In, psychologically, for Man City fans. But I'm old school, so it's Manchester United for me.
0: Um, Neil you've been absolutely brilliant uh fantastic guest really interesting I'm gonna let you go soon get back to work life and work in, in Jerusalem <laughs> uh, before I, I do emails have been
1: pinging in I've yeah
0: yeah listeners might be healthy or ping I should say that's that's Neil's phone he did say before we started recording he had to keep his phone on for obvious reasons and uh, that's been absolutely fine and um, I appreciate you talking while also technically working as well but a couple of things before I let you go so in my last, lunchtime
1: can I just say if my boss is listening in my lunchtime Richard honest <laughs>
0: yeah. oh, of course, you're a couple of hours ahead as well, aren't you? It's half 12 in England. What time's at your end? It's about half two.
1: Uh, it's uh, now 25 past two, so I've really got to go. Session.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Before I do, let's, get, let's just go through a couple of things. So, first of all, you're all time 11. Um, and this is, as I said, get guests who come on this podcast to, to pick a, an all-time 11 based on the players they've seen during their time supporting their respective club. Neil's picked a City team. It's the first team in fans history that has actually got 12 players. Um, now, I've arranged it into a four two four one 2 4 one formation, Neil, um, and it's a, it's a funky team. There's no doubt about that. Let's go through it. We've got so two we- goalkeepers now. OK, well, come on to that second. Let me just read out the original team and then you can tell me the changes. God, this is going to be quite the mission going to this team, isn't it? Right. So in goal, Nicky Weaver, the back four, mm-hmm. Mika Richards, Vincent Company, John Stones and Keith Curl. Um, I've then stuck two uh, two midfielders in front of that back four, which is F- Fernandinho and Yaya Torre. There's then a four man attacking uh, sort of quartet of players uh, in front of Fernandinho and Yaya Torre. And that is John Wright Phillips alongside Georgie Kincladze, David Silva, and Kevin De Bruyne. And the lone striker is, of course, Sergio Aguero. Um, so, yeah, a crazy team. I had loads of questions to ask about that team. Before I ask any of those questions, yeah, sounds like you made some changes. What you've got two yeah. goalkeepers now?
1: Yeah, now Bert Champman. I dropped Michael Richards and <laughs> uh, Bert Champman in. Uh, I don't know where he plays in this. I don't know, but he needs to be part of this because he's a legend. And um, I actually saw, didn't see him play, obviously, but um, uh, my dad did. But um, he actually came on to uh, the pitch, one a Manchester City match at the Atihad, and like the entire stand just went bananas. I can imagine, yeah. Yeah. Because he, he, uh, people might not remember, um, he was the German paratrooper. He literally was a German paratrooper who'd ended up in the transit internment camp in Lancashire in 1947, 1948. And um, he ended up staying, signing for Manchester City And in, an, in the, I think it was a 1955 FA Cup final. He dived at the feet of an opposing player uh-huh. some 12 minutes before the whistle uh, to, to prevent him scoring a goal because City were winning. And, um, and he broke his neck. And you actually see on the, on the um, movie Tone News, you actually see him get the cup. And his, ne- his neck is bent. And it's because his neck is broken. And that's yeah. after that. Legend. City legend. City no, legend.
0: It's a, yeah. no, it's a story that's gone down in, in football folklore. Um, is there any other changes to this team before I ask you a couple of questions about it? Well,
1: no, let me have a quick look. Because, like, obviously, Sean Phillips get in for obvious reasons. Sean Gota. Apero, is to in
0: now? Is Goater in the team now as well?
1: Yeah, uh, in. Uh, I've, I've done other things as well. Yeah. Um, I just want I just I just hadn't it's it's easy to sort of when you watch players of the quality that you watch now it's easy to put people like Kevin De Bruyne in, David Silver. David Silver arguably the best player ever to wear a Manchester City shirt. So many moments. Uh if I had a, a quid for the times that commentators called him the little magician, I could retire tomorrow. Mm. So um yeah, I mean just um, Sean Wright Phillips will always be in our hearts um, I remember taking Leslie my other half to um, a Manchester City match very early on in Sean Wright Phillips' career my other half Leslie doesn't like football and she likes food and she took a copy of the Observer Food Monthly <laughs> to the match never seen anything like it and uh, Sean Wright Phillips of course his the start of his career he actually grew during his career literally physically yeah, uh... when he was appearing again for Man City at the beginning and he was running up and down the wing and uh, the Norwich players, who were huge tractor boys, they were just knocking him over. Mm. And after after a little while, Leslie stopped reading the Observer Food Monthly and started watching Sean Wright Phillips. Wow! And always, he's always had a place in her heart ever since.
0: Oh, that's lovely. I should say, yeah, Sean Wright Phillips had two spells at City. Then in '99 to 2005, and then came back in 2008 2011 um okay uh, what I've got to do is I've got to draw this team up in a graphic so I'll, I'll try and work yeah. in uh Troutman and uh go as well but it should be able yeah. to work just ask you one question on the team before the final question I was I was, I was really fascinated by by Mika Richards getting in there over someone like Pablo Zabaleta for instance because yeah, obviously awesome. Richards Richards now is obviously known as being a a pundit you know a very good yeah. pundit for, and Sky, and it? yeah, for Sky and BBC yeah for Sky and BBC um he's got into your team I said over Pablo Zabaleta who's a bit of a city legend why yeah. did he get in why is Richards in instead of over Zabaleta?
1: Uh sheer error by me should have been Zabaleta.
0: <laughs> Do you want to change that as well?
1: Yeah. In fairness, Stuart Pierce. Uh not when he was managing Man City, but when he was managing some other club, um forgot to put a goalkeeper in when he did up his eleven months Do you remember that? Oh uh,
0: yeah, that does ring a bell. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so do you want Zabaletta instead of Richards? I can make yeah, that one I'm, fun. I'm a piece of Zabaletta instead. Zabaletta. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. All right, Neil, i got to let you go because you got to go have your lunch. Before I do, final question, final, final question. Yeah. Now I was going I always do a final question on this podcast and um I was gonna change it for this series, but um I've decided not to. I decided to stay with the final question from Series 2. A, because it lent itself to some really good answers in Series 2, and also because I couldn't think of anything better, to be honest. So let's go with the final question. Uh, Neil Henderson, if you could go back in time and alter one moment from your time supporting Manchester City up to now, and it can be absolutely anything, it could be a transfer, it could be a match, it could be a a goal, it could be a personal moment, it could be absolutely anything, what would you choose? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing?
1: Wouldn't ever be, wouldn't ever alter anything. Yeah, the disasters have been brilliant disasters. The triumphs have been brilliant triumphs. I wouldn't alter anything. Not one thing would I alter. And um, yeah, not a thing. We've had some brilliant, brilliant times over the decades watching Man City. Would I change anything? No, not one thing. Not one thing. Well, the only thing I would change is I'd like to be there more. Yeah. That's the only thing
0: I'd change. Oh, that's a great answer. That is another brilliant answer to that question. Uh, Neil Henderson, thank you very much.
1: Let's you, see bless you. you saw me standing alone.